Would you join me in a word of prayer as we look into God's Word this morning? Father, we confess that blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, who meditates on it day and night. We confess that that he will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, and that he will prosper and bring forth fruit in its season. So as we come to your word this morning, Lord, we, we want to delight in it. We want to meditate on it. Would you bless us as we endeavor in this study? Help us to, to understand. Help these truths that we will see in your word to not just be surface thoughts, but plant them deep in our hearts. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Micah. Micah chapter 1. And this morning we'll be looking not just at Micah chapter 1, but I have the ambitious goal of looking at Micah chapter 1 and Micah chapter 2. So I hope that your lunch plans are not set for, uh, for 12 o'clock or you know, even 1 or maybe even 2. Uh, this could be an all-day affair, folks. I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I might not preach till September if that happens. So we'll see. Micah chapter 1. I want you to imagine with me uh, a situation. Imagine an abandoned orphan child left along the side of the road. Maybe that wouldn't happen nowadays, but I just came back from Scotland. So imagine that you're in Scotland and there is an abandoned orphan child along the side of the road. Someone comes along and has pity on this needy child. They bring the child into their house. They give the child everything, from clothing to food, from education to status. They provide it all. The orphan lacks nothing. Where once this orphan was skin and bones, now they have access to anything they need or want. This orphan child is loved and cared for well, given a safe, nurturing home, and protected from harm. The day comes when the child, now grown and almost an adult, decides to leave the safety and protection of this new home and decides to sell themselves into slavery to a mean, unkind master. How would you feel if you were the one who had rescued that orphan and provided everything for them? Would you be a little confused? Would there be some shock? There would probably be some hurt and perhaps some anger. That scenario describes in just a very flimsy way what the people of Israel have done to God. We read in the Old Testament of all that God did to provide for and protect His people. He even says in the prophets themselves pretty much that very scenario. Yet as we dive into Micah, we see the people of God abandoning Him for other idols. God's not content to let His people find their own ways. He chastens them. And here's the key point, because why in the world would He do that? Why wouldn't He just step back and say, look, you want to go there? Go do it. He doesn't do that because He made a covenant with them. He bound Himself to them forever and He will not leave them. Well, as we prepare to look at Micah, let's just briefly recall some of the historical context of what Micah is dealing with. We looked in, in last time in our study just at verse 1, and we saw that he is a prophet of God. So Micah's job as a prophet is to speak on behalf of God to his people. So what Micah is speaking is not his opinion, his thoughts. Micah's job as a prophet is to communicate to the people God's words and God's thoughts. During this time in Israel's history, the twelve tribes of Israel have split into two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of Israel in the north, and there is the kingdom of Judah in the south. Jerusalem is the capital of Judah, and Samaria is the capital of Israel. And Micah, like his contemporaries Isaiah and Hosea, is is warning God's people to turn from their idolatry and evil and follow God. 
follow the covenant that God made with His people. The passage that Sven read for us this morning in 2 Kings 17 kind of provides the historical context around what Micah is covering. And there's just several things I want to draw your attention to. I don't necessarily need you to turn to 2 Kings 17. It's in your worship guide if you want to open it up and see it for yourself. But in 2 Kings 17, verse 12, here's what God notes about His people. They served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this thing. So there's an explicit command by God to His people not to worship idols. He clearly tells His people not to serve idols. In 2 Kings 17, 15, and 16, they reject His statutes and His covenant that He made with their fathers and His testimonies which He had testified against them. They followed idols. And in case we didn't get the point, became idolaters. And in case we still didn't get the point, went after the nations who were all around them concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. So what we need to see at the outset is what the Israelites are engaging in is blatant disobedience of something that God has explicitly and repeatedly told them not to do. Israel in serving idols is intentionally doing wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger. We read in our passage this morning, the children of Israel secretly did against the Lord their God things that were not right to provoke the Lord to anger. We read the Lord was very angry with Israel. And in case we're tempted to think, well, of course, Israel, of course they would do that. Judah would never do that. We read at the very end of the passage that Sven read this morning, Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the statutes of Israel. Come on, Judah. So Israel and Judah both have this deliberate, persistent, we-don't-want-to-follow-God problem. And this morning, we're going to look at the first of three oracles that Micah prophesies against the people of Israel. He foretells of God's coming judgment and destruction on Samaria and on Jerusalem. This prophecy serves as a warning to the people of Judah, to whom Micah is primarily writing. But God's message through Micah to the people of Judah and to us as we read Micah this morning and study it is this. Though we deserve judgment from God, He will deliver us because of His grace. As we, see these, as we study these two chapters, we will see this idea. Though we deserve judgment from God, He will deliver us because of His grace. So you're in Micah chapter 1. And let's begin reading. We're going to read all of chapter 1 together. Follow along as I begin reading at verse 2. Micah chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. Hear, all you peoples. Listen, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from His holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of His place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under Him and the valleys will split like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the field, places for planting a vineyard. I will pour down her stones into the valley and I will uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces and all her pay as a harlot shall be burned with the fire. All her idols I will lay desolate, for she gathered it from the pay of a harlot and they shall return to the pay of a harlot." Therefore, I will wail and howl. I will go stripped and naked. I will make a wailing like the jackals and a mourning like the ostriches. For her wounds are incurable. For it has come to Judah. It has come to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all in Beth Aphra. Roll yourself in the dust. Pass by in naked shame, you inhabitant of Shaphir. The inhabitant of Zanan does not go out. Beth Ezel mourns. Its place to stand is taken away from you. For the inhabitant of Marath pined for good, but disaster came down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. 
O inhabitant of Lachish, harness the chariot to the swift steeds. She was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for the transgressions of Israel were found in you. Therefore you shall give presents to Moresheth Gath. The houses of Exib shall be a lie to the kings of Israel. I will yet bring an heir to you, O inhabitant of Marisha. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourself bald and cut off your hair because of your precious children. Enlarge your baldness like an eagle, for they shall go from you into captivity. As we look at chapter 1 and consider chapter 2 in a few moments, there's three points I want us to see this morning as we look at these two chapters. First, I want us to see the judgment on idolatrous kingdoms. The judgment on idolatrous kingdoms. There there is, in a sense, a a corporate judgment that's taking place here in chapter 1. All of the people of Israel, all of the people of Judah are going to be judged. And what we see here in chapter 1, verses 2-7, through give us a a prophetic uh, word concerning what will take place. Verses eight through, I'm sorry, verses eight through sixteen give us a lament concerning the coming judgment of God on the people of God, represented in these carnal kingdoms of Israel and Judah. But before we consider what's going to happen, consider who is going to be making it happen. We see in verses two through four a breathtaking depiction of the one true God. Did you take note of the significance of what we see in verses two through four? God reigns over all the earth in His holy temple. Do you notice the term Lord God? Verse 2, let the Lord God be a witness against you. This is not just a deity. This is a ruling, sovereign deity. This is not just any ruling deity. This is the, the, the highest of the high ruling deity. He, is, he has superb authority. He reigns over all the earth. He is high and lifted up. These two things are are similar to something else that one of Micah's contemporaries writes. Isaiah says something very similar in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah sees the Lord, and he sees the Lord high and lifted up. And his train fills the temple. And the cherubim are calling back and forth to each other that God is holy, holy, holy. So there's this elevated view of God. That God is not just a buddy of Israel. He is not just a friend of Israel. No, He is the sovereign ruler of all of the earth. He serves as a witness against the earth. We see that in verse 3. Behold, the Lord is coming out of His place. Verse 2, the Lord God is going to be a witness against you. This implies that he's in a position of judgment and authority. He he is like a global prosecutor. And as he's coming, what is he going to bear witness about? Is he does he have any power behind him or is he just a prosecutor but doesn't actually have any power to be able to hand down judgment? And what we see is he is not just coming only as a prosecutor. He's coming as a judge. He is coming in judgment for the sins of mankind, and His judgment is not light. All the earth flees before His awesome presence. That's what verse 4 is referring to. The mountains will melt under Him. The valleys will split. Even the most basic elements of creation want to get away as soon as God stands up to come out of His holy temple. They are terrified to be in His presence. This verse 4 poetically expresses the fact that nothing can stand before God. Not even the greatest mountain or the lowest valley. Hebrews 4.13 helps us in this understanding. It says, There is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. So friend, we see a breathtaking depiction of the one true God. And we we might ask ourselves, why is God worked up at the people of Israel? Why is He so agitated with them? We see in verse 5, this penetrating 
observation of what's taking place in Samaria and Jerusalem. All this is for the transgression or the rebellion or the revolt of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. So, God is coming down in judgment. Why? Well, in a very simplistic way, it's because Jacob and Israel have sinned. The kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah have sinned against God, and they deserve to be judged. So, we see there, what is the transgression of Jacob? Verse 5, is it not Samaria? What are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Why does he identify the two capitals of Samaria and Jerusalem? Well, these are the two prominent cultural places in these kingdoms. They are the centers of religion and culture. And by naming them, Micah, God, is implicating the entire country. He's using a part, the capital city, to indict the whole, the whole kingdom. So, What we need to understand here is that Israel and Judah have deliberately violated the covenant that God made with His people. That's behind the idea of transgression and sin. There is a deliberateness and a rebelliousness and a choosing to revolt against a standard that has been laid down by their king. They've committed treason of the highest order. They have usurped the rule of God over them and have replaced worshiping Him with the worship of false gods in high places. But we could also ask ourselves, does does the punishment that God is planning to hand out fit the crime? I mean, this seems like a really severe punishment. They're just worshiping idols. Is it really that big of a deal? What we see over and over again throughout the book of Micah, throughout the Old Testament in general, is this principle of whatever has been done, the punishment is directly in line with what has been done. God does not over-punish. He does not under-punish. He sufficiently punishes. Whatever Whatever offense has taken place, God punishes accurately and sufficiently for it. The judgment that is coming perfectly fits the crime committed by the people of Israel. Later in Israel's history, God articulates what His people have done to Him this way uh, through the prophet Jeremiah. He says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken Me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, or uh, pots to hold water that can hold no water. They've rejected the one who truly cares and loves them. So verses 6 and 7 lay out the judgment that is coming on Samaria. Look at it. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the field, places for planting a vineyard. I will pour down her stones into the valley. I will uncover her foundations. The city will be completely destroyed. Good for nothing except a vineyard field. Do you notice how he says in verse 7, all her carved images, all her pay as a harlot, all her idols I will lay desolate. This, This is a way for God to underlie the complete and thorough destruction of Samaria. There's no exceptions. And we come to verse 7 and we're a little confused because there's this uh, pay as a harlot that's used. Why does he say, all her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, and then we read, all her pay as a harlot shall be burned with the fire, all her idols I will lay desolate. And then we come to this sentence, for she gathered it from the pay of a harlot, and they shall return to the pay of a harlot. There's some irony here at the end of verse 7. It points to the fact that the punishment equals the crime. Because what have the people done in essence? They have... They have committed sexual immorality in their worship of idols. They have committed adultery on God. And notice though that the idols of Samaria, they are obtained at the beginning of verse 7 through the pay of a harlot, and their idols will be returned to the pay of a harlot. In other words, the sexual immorality that characterized Samaria will be taken and used by the attacking nations in their own practices of sexual immorality. 
they will no longer be able to continue using them, the people of Israel. These idols that they have assembled. And what's going to take place? They're going to be captured, taking captivity. And the, the nation that is taking them captive will return them as pay for a harlot. So there's some irony taking place. It reinforces the fact that the punishment fits the crime. The judgment that God is getting ready to hand down is, is sufficient for and covers the offense that Israel has made. In the face of this prophecy, we turn to a lament in verses 8-16. through And this lament is not just for Samaria. It's for the coming judgment in Jerusalem. And we see that as we look at verses 8-16. through Micah begins, Therefore I will wail and howl. I will go stripped and naked. I will make a wailing like the jackals and a mourning like the ostriches. Micah is deeply troubled by the coming judgment on Jerusalem. He sees what's taking place in Samaria and in his own homeland of Judah, he sees those same things taking place. And he's moved to lament for it. Notice the agony and pain of Micah's lament in verses 8 and 9. He even says, her wounds are incurable. The her there referring back to Samaria that we saw in in verses 6 and 7. Her wounds are incurable. And then he says, for it has come to Judah. It has come to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Micah describes Samaria's transgression as an incurable wound that has now been transmitted. That should be a familiar word to us after we've come through uh, the last few years of being a part of the pandemic. What, are we, what were we afraid of during that time? We were afraid of transmission of disease. And here, this is not just a cold. This is not just a virus. This is an incurable wound. In verses 10-16, through 16, Micah lists 12 different towns. Why Micah chose these 12 towns instead of others is a matter of speculation, but these 12 towns serve to raise the emotion and the tension of the coming judgment. The first and the last town have Davidic references in them. Look with me at verse 10. Tell it not in Gath. That is, that's a quote that David said in 2 Samuel after Saul and Jonathan had been killed. It was, it was so shameful. There was so much calamity. There was so much upheaval from that that he said it shouldn't be told in Gath. Gath was where the enemies of Israel were. And it was so shameful. It was going to be so tremendous. Tell it not in Gath. And here, Micah invokes that same phrase here. You look at the very end in verse 15. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Well, Adullam was where David fled to try to hide from Saul. And he was successful. He was able to flee from Saul. Well, the irony here is the glory of Israel, that phrase, glory of Israel, refers to the rulers of Israel, the the nobility of Israel. And the sad irony is they are going to come to Adullam like David, trying to flee from their enemy. David was successful. The glory of Israel will not be successful. And so there's some sad irony here that's taking place. And in recognizing the good times back when David was king, the way that God protected and provided for David, not so now. With these other ten towns, though, there, there's these play on words that Micah uses in the original Hebrew language. So there, there's meaning behind the name of the town and then what Micah says about the town. For sake of time, I don't have time to get into all of them. I just want to highlight several of them for you. Look with me at verse 10. He mentions Beth Aphra and tells, tells these people to roll themselves in the dust. Why in the world would he tell them to roll themselves in the dust? Well, rolling yourself in the dust is a sign of mourning and lament, and he is in the middle of a lament. But why would he tell these people to roll in the dust? Because their name means house of dust. So those who live in the, in the city of the house of dust are told to roll in the dust. Look at verse 13. Lachish. 
They're told to harness the chariot to the swift steeds. This was a military fortress. One of the preeminent places that Judah had for military prominence. They were known for being able to send out armies and and achieve victories and they would come back victorious. And the sad irony here is the inhabitants of Lachish are harnessing the chariots to the swift steeds and they're preparing for a battle that they have no chance of winning. Because they're not fighting just any nation. They're fighting against the judgment of God and they will not win. Verse 14 seems to be a positive note. Uh, Morasheth Gath, you will give presents to Morasheth Gath. That sounds kind of positive. Until we realize the town name in Hebrew sounds similar to the word for possessor or heir. Morasheth Gath will be given presents. Possessors and rulers. Heirs who will come in from the nations that will be taking them captive. They will not be presents from Judah. They will be from those who will conquer Judah. And so even even this positive note in the lament is actually in and of itself a cry of, of judgment that will be coming on this town. In seeking an heir, it won't be one of their own heirs. It will be a foreign nation's heir that will be coming as a present to that town. Micah's lament is directed at the coming judgment in Jerusalem. And verse 16 is directed specifically at Jerusalem. Make yourself bald and cut off your hair because of your precious children. Enlarge your baldness like an eagle, for they shall go from you into captivity. The city of Israel, what will happen to it? It will also fall. And there's to be some intense mourning and lament that takes place. That's what's behind the idea of making yourself bald and cutting off your hair. Because of your precious children. Rather than them being raised up to continue in Jerusalem, they'll be raised up. But they will be raised up and they shall go from you into captivity. This is a sad portion of Scripture. And we have to remind ourselves, we have to remember why all this judgment is coming in the first place. Why is all of this going to be done? Why is Samaria going to be wiped out? Why is Jerusalem going to be wiped out? Why are there going to be people who are taken into exile? It's because of the Israelites' deliberate and rebellious attempts to abandon God and worship other gods. Micah sees the rampant wickedness and idolatry in his day among the people of God, and it drives him to lament for the coming destruction on his country. Friends, sin is serious and it's a big deal to God. Do you view your sin as cosmic treason against the God of the universe? Or have you domesticated your sin and view of God to minimize your guilt? Is sin like a cute little kitten to you? Or is it like a wild, untamed lion? Is it something that that you treat seriously and, and are cautious with? Or is it something that you welcome into your house freely and coddle? Kids and teens, how often do you feel the weight of your sinfulness? When you disrespect your parents or bully and manipulate your siblings, do you realize the seriousness of that sin? That's not just a little thing. You just committed cosmic treason against the God of the universe. Do you feel the weight of that? Senior saints, is your frustration at the sin that you see around you only directed at the sins of the younger generations? Or are you mindful of your own sin and idolatry? Does it frustrate you as much when you gossip or you are impatient with someone as it does when you see sin in others? Sin is serious and it is a big deal to God. Idolatry is the primary thing that God has against His people in this passage. What are ways that we construct idols in our lives? Parents, what idolatrous expectations do you set for your kids? Do you compare your family to others on social media and covet the approval of men rather than following God? Men and women, what desires and lusts 
are you tempted to replace God with? Are you happier after you shoot a deer than after you've gathered with God's people? Are you more excited when you get a new, uh, when you get new shoes or clothing or you score an amazing bargain than when you read your Bible? Idolatry hits at what we love. Idolatry hits at our affections. In many ways, the Christian life is a battle for our affections to be centered on God and nothing else. Think about what we're doing right now. When we gather together as a church and we sing and we worship and we praise our great God, what we're doing is we are in essence affirming to one another that God is our treasure and we want our hope, we want our joy, we want our love to be with and for God alone. That's why it's so important that we gather together as a church regularly to affirm that to one another and encourage one another. Well, not only will God judge these idolatrous kingdoms, but He will judge corrupt leaders. Look with me as we turn our attention now to chapter 2. And follow along as I read chapter 2. I'm going to read from verses 1 down to verse 11. Woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil on their beds. At morning light, they practice it because it's in the power of their hand. They covet fields and take them by violence, also houses and seize them. So they oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks, nor shall you walk haughtily, for this is an evil time. In that day, one shall take up a proverb against you and lament with a bitter lamentation, saying, we are utterly destroyed He has changed the heritage of my people. How He has removed it from me. To a turncoat He's divided our fields. Therefore, you will have no one to determine boundaries by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not prattle, you say to those who prophesy, so they shall not prophesy to you. They shall not return insult for insult. You who are named the house of Jacob, is the Spirit of the Lord restricted? Are these His doings? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? Lately, my people have risen up as an enemy. You pull off the robe with the garment from those who trust you as they pass by like men returned from war. The women of my people you cast out from their pleasant houses, from their children. You have taken away my glory forever. Arise and depart, for this is not your rest. Because it is defiled, it shall destroy. Yes, with utter destruction. If a man should walk in a false spirit and speak a lie, saying, I will prophesy to you of wine and drink, even he would be the prattler of this people. As we consider these first 11 verses of chapter 2, we see a, a shift from lament to a pronouncement of woe. There's a pronouncement of woe on two groups of people in Judah whose actions have contributed to the coming judgment of God on Judah. So we've seen the judgment on carnal kingdoms, and we see the judgment on corrupt leaders. Specifically in verses 1-5, through they highlight the covetous aims of the corrupt wealthy landowners. They plot and scheme and plan to oppress their fellow man. And it's important for us to note at at the outset that these covetous aims are nothing less than idolatry. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul lists a number of things that Christians are to put off. And he names covetousness, which is idolatry. So, even just by Micah saying that they covet fields and take them by violence, he has already included them in the general indictment of God's people that they are idolaters. These people devise iniquity. They put time and effort and thought behind their plans. They plot their evil secretly. They work out evil on their beds. And at morning light, they practice it. This is a little bit of a twist from what we would expect at morning light. The phrase at morning light when it's used typically refers to to justice or deliverance. 
The first light at morning light was a time when justice was handed out in towns and cities back in those days. Rather than justice and deliverance being handed out at morning light, the citizens of Judah find injustice from their leaders rather than justice. There's a twisted irony here in what these leaders are doing. Verse 2 highlights what the greedy landowners are seeking. They, they covet fields and they take them by violence. They covet houses and they seize them. In all of this, they oppress the citizens and their houses and their inheritance. That's an important thing for us to grasp. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. In that day and age, property and your house, your inheritance, was your livelihood. Without it, you were destined to be a servant and a slave. In their greedy corruption, these evildoers are deliberately disrupting the generous inheritance God gave His people. God is the one that gave these people their land and their houses. When He made His covenant with them, He he gave people the land. He gave the tribes the land to hand out to the people and everybody was given an inheritance. Well, here these corrupt landowners are taking matters into their own hands. Rather than trusting God for their prosperity and their needs, they're taking it into their own hands to achieve through violence and corruption. This is indeed corruption of the highest order. Verses 3 through 5 again demonstrate that God is not overpunishing or underpunishment underpunishing he is sending punishment that fits the crime. The severity of the punishment equals the severity of the offense. In God's judgment, those who coveted and took by violence will themselves be taken in covetousness and violence. With stocks of slavery they will not be able to escape. That's what we see there at in verse 3. The Lord is devising disaster against these corrupt landowners from which you cannot remove your necks. There will be a noose of slavery coming and you're not going to be able to to pull it off and escape from it. More than that, in verse 4, their judgment is taken a step further. What they coveted, their fields and possession, it will be taken from them. It'll be redistributed to others, namely the people who are going to come and capture them. They forfeit their ability in verse 5 to acquire land under God's covenant with his people as he had intended. You will have no one to determine boundaries by lot in the assembly of the Lord. In other words, these corrupt landowners, though they want everything, in the end, in God's judgment, they will lose everything. They're trying to take everything from people and they will end up losing everything. Verses 6-11 through highlight the false teaching of those who opposed Micah's pronouncement of judgment on the people. They are tied hand in glove with the corrupt landowners. In a, in a way, they may even be the ones who are enabling these corrupt landowners. The false teachers insist Micah and his other like-minded prophets stop preaching or prattling. This sort of teaching is in stark contrast to the false teachers. Prattling has the idea of, of teaching and preaching that has an impact on people. It has the, this word picture of drop after drop after drop after drop. And eventually, it it starts impacting and and hitting the the ears of their hearers. Do not prattle, you say to those who prophesy. So they shall not prophesy to you. They shall not return insult for insult. But then, Micah asks the people questions in verse 7. He asks the house of Jacob, is the Spirit of the Lord restricted? Are these His doings? And then there's a pointed question for us to meditate on. Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? Why would the false prophets not be in line with Micah's teaching? Well, because they're hand in glove with these corrupt landowners, these coveting landowners who are trying to undermine everything that God has said. 
if these prophets preach what is true, the landowners won't like them. They might be mean to them and take their inheritance. But God's words do good to him who walks uprightly. Micah and the other true prophets preaching would impact their listeners. These false teachers are trying to cast doubt on whether God will actually judge those who are evil. Is is this covenant really that big of a deal? I mean, come on. God's all the way up in the heavens. He's not concerned with what we're doing down here. So if you want to go make something or if you want to bend the rules a little bit to to see so-and-so's inheritance, I didn't see anything. And rather than calling out the evil and corruption, they're complicit in it. Micah appeals to the efficacy of his message in verse 7. My words, the Lord's words, do good to him who walks uprightly. Verses 8 and 9 describe what the false teachers are doing. Lately, my people have risen up as an enemy. That's God's indictment to these false teachers. You pull off the robe with the garment from those who trust you as they pass by like men return from war. You're, you're savage. You're militant when you don't need to be. The women of my people, the vulnerable ones, you cast out from their pleasant houses, from their children. You have taken away my glory forever. Micah's response to these false teachers in verses 10 and 11 is simple. Verse 10, arise and depart. Get out. Leave. You will not find rest here. What will you find? If you stay here, you will find destruction. Because it is defiled, it shall destroy. Yes, with utter destruction. Verse 11, though, is Micah's indictment on the listeners of these false prophets. As they listen, he says, if a man would walk in a false spirit and speak a lie, in other words, if, if he doesn't have God with him and he doesn't say God's words to you, and he says something like, I will prophesy to you of wine and drink, even he would make an impact on these people. That's how corrupt, that's how evil God's people are at this point. Someone could walk in and say something blatantly untrue. Not even partially untrue. Completely untrue. And the people of Israel would be like, Amen. It's a good word. Boy, we've reached a low. At this point in chapter 2, the situation in Judah is bleak. It's bleak because sin has blinded the people of God to something that God has explicitly commanded. What sin blinds you to something God has explicitly commanded? Does your desire for fun and relaxation mute the commands of God to gather with His people? If in our gathering we are affirming that God is who we treasure most, does your desire for fun and relaxation mute that command? Does your covetous desire for more money or status or, or a new toy or gadget cause you to ignore God's commands to hospitality and generosity? Does your desire to be accepted at work mean you look the other way when something ethically or morally wrong takes place? Does sin blind you to something that God has explicitly commanded? Back to the people of Israel. There's corruption in the centers of society. There's corruption in the centers of religion. Trust in God is non-existent. Following God and keeping His covenant is the last thing on anyone's mind. The question that ought to be running through our mind at this point ought to be, is there any hope for the people of God? I mean, it seems like God from verses from chapter 1, verses 2-4, through four, it seems like God's pretty upset with these people. And it seems from what we've looked at up to this point, that God's wrath towards His people is justly deserved. They've earned every bit of this judgment that's coming to them. Is there any hope for the people of God? And that's when we come to verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2. Follow along as I read these massively significant verses. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. 
I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep of the fold, like a flock in the midst of their pasture. They shall make a loud noise because of so many people. The one who breaks open will come up before them. They will break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. Their king will pass before them with the Lord at their head. There is hope for Israel. So we've seen judgment on carnal kingdoms, judgment on corrupt leaders. Finally, we see deliverance and victory. Deliverance and victory. In these last two verses of chapter 2, we see a glimmer of hope. Up to this point, we've seen nothing but judgment and woe because of the sins of people against God. And it appears up to this point that God has had enough with His people and will finally destroy them. But that thought takes a sharp turn in verse 12. In verse 12, God is speaking again. And several other times He's spoken already and He's spoken judgment and woe. He said, against this family, I'm devising disaster. Back in chapter 1, He's the one who's coming down to bear witness against the people. And here He's speaking... And he speaks as a shepherd seeking to gather his sheep. Up to this point, Micah has been emphasizing the certainty of divine judgment. But here, God offers certain hope and deliverance for His people. There's a marked shift. Verse 12, verses 12 and 13 is a glass of water in the desert of Israel's current situation. Even in the destruction and judgment that is coming, God will bring some. Notice that He says there in verse 12, I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. He will bring some out and deliver them. He will assemble all of His people. They will be a flock of sheep set aside and protected by God. Notice how verse 12 ends. They shall make a loud noise because of so many people. So it's not just Micah, Isaiah, and Hosea that are coming out. There's going to be a number of people that God is bringing out. And there's going to be chaos. And that's some of what's behind the loud noise because of so many people. Who's going to lead them? And all throughout the Old Testament, that's been the question. Who is going to lead God's people? The obvious answer is God is the best leader of God's people. But Israel has been searching for someone to lead them. And in verse 13, we realize... A king's going to pass before them. The Lord is going to be at their head. Israel is going to be happiest and most content and most satisfied when the Lord is their king and when they are following Him. They will be a flock of sheep set aside and protected by God. Friends, this is grace. What we are reading in verses 12 and 13 is grace. It is good news. There is nothing about God's people that warrants God to deliver them. There is nothing good that they have done that could motivate God to do anything but judge them for their sin were it not for His grace. Christian, this ought to cause us to marvel at the grace that God has shown His people. And not just the Israelites in Micah, but to us as well. Consider the parallel between the grace shown to Israel and the grace shown to us through Christ that Paul describes in Ephesians 2. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We were by nature children of wrath. We were under divine judgment. But God... Because of His great mercy and His love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is the situation we see in Micah chapter 2. We see a people under divine judgment. Justly so, like we were. And yet God shows them grace like He has shown us. Friend, if you have not trusted in Christ for salvation, this grace that God showed to these wicked, corrupt people is available to you as well. 
mankind as a whole and mankind individually, each one of us has rebelled and revolted against what God has commanded us to do. We've transgressed just like Judah. We've sinned just like Israel. And just like the people of God, we are under divine judgment were it not for God's grace. Christ has provided deliverance from the penalty of sin and provides forgiveness for your sin. Not for the person sitting next to you, but for your sin. You can have your sin forgiven and not counted against you because God has been gracious towards you. He has demonstrated His love and that even when you were a sinner, He sent Christ to die on the cross for you. If you'll turn to Him in faith and repent of your sins, He will save you. So, friend, if you've never trusted in Christ, can I encourage you? Trust in Him today. Come to Him with your sin. Confess it to Him. Say, this is what you say it is. It is transgressing against what you have commanded. And I believe that you can save me and He will save you. I'd love to talk to you about this after the service. If you have questions, Pastor Harris would love to talk to you about it as well. You could talk to someone around you and they would be more than happy to share with you what Christ has done and how you can have salvation in Christ today. So we have the image of shepherd and we have the image of king. In these prophecies, we not only see God's faithfulness to His people then through physical deliverance of the remnant of Israel, but we see God's faithfulness to us in this text through the work of Christ. Christ came as the Good Shepherd, seeking to save those who were lost. And we are awaiting the return of Christ again in which He will establish His kingdom as the eternal ruler over all things. So church, let's be sober about the seriousness of our sin and hope for the deliverance that Christ will bring at His return. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this is a weighty passage in Your Word that You have spoken. It is heavy because of the judgment that it carries on the just judgment that it carries. We confess that we are no different than the people of Israel. We are idolaters through and through. We deserve that same just judgment. But thank You that through Christ, You have promised to deliver us. That You have shown us so much grace and kindness. Father, You have been faithful where we have been utterly unfaithful. Thank You that You stay the same, that You will not change, that You are perfect. And that we can come to You for salvation. Thank You for that grace. Would You help us to not use that as an excuse to take our sin lightly? Help us to see it as serious. May we confess it to You knowing that You offer forgiveness. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.